the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. And welcome back as we head into our three, a few cultural notes to get us to a few political ones drawn from the weekend. Noting that the actor Roger Mosley died at age 83, my mind went back to how wonderful his character TC on the show Magnum P.I. was. I was thinking about the year 1983 and when Roger Mosley was about 43. And, of course, how much that show meant to so many in the 1980s. The concept of this strong man and role model whose storylines and shows are still watched in syndication. Being 83 gives one pause about how the world moves on and ages when you're still thinking about him and your memory of him is from 1983. And it kind of goes to something our brains and frames of reference may not be fully equipped for. We all feel a little older, of course, when we see this kind of news, if not a lot older, as we watch life everywhere else move on, where the artist in his best work freezes us in a time that no longer exists and leaves our memory of him there, even if it was decades ago. Good art, like good words, to borrow from Timothy Leary, tend to freeze reality, especially if the art is in the verities and durables of truth. I was discussing with a friend the import and magic of Magnum P.I., the show, and I could do this for hours. I've even written a movie script with a friend for the series once. But for just today, a few small things. First, in discussing with my friend, I was explaining the most famous line from the entire series, though there were many, was about a Russian spy, espionage character named Ivan, who tortured the whole Magnum P.I. group back in Vietnam, according to the storyline. And he was set on finishing the job in the 1980s. Did you see the sunrise this morning? Was the famous line Magnum asked before he removed Ivan from the earth we all shared. But before he did that, he asked Ivan who was next on his hit list. He said Begin, Thatcher, Reagan. And of course, the mind goes back to how great world leadership was just not that long ago, at least in recent memory, at least where the objects in the rearview mirror are not as close as they appear. What a better world we had, a more serious world, committed to more serious things, a world when America had Reagan, England had Thatcher, Israel had Menachem Begin, and then, of course, also, one cannot forget John Paul II. But what an interesting world Roger Mosley was thrust into as well. I believe with the possible exceptions of I Spy in the 1960s and maybe Mod Squad, Roger Mosley was the first black actor in a non-comedy hour-long series, in an hour-long drama series. And additionally interesting is, so far as I can recall, never once did any of the main characters or any of the episodes ever reference his race, except, except the only time 
his race was an issue, and obviously it would be in a pejorative way, was when Ivan, the communist, Ivan the Russian communist, made use of it and taunted him over it. Interesting point that the communist was the only one who used race and mentioned it against T.C. or Roger Mosley in the Magnum P.I. series. Worth remembering that. Another interesting aside, beers and scotch whiskeys and cigars were heavily featured and used on Magnum P.I., except for one character who never touched any of it, to a point of it being noticed, and that was T.C. or Roger Mosley. As my co-writer on the Magnum movie script reminded me, Mosley did not want to be responsible for portraying that image to young black men, which he saw himself as a sotto voce or implied role model to. As Roger Mosley himself put it in 1982 interview, quote, they, the Magnum writers, keep writing for me to smoke and drink, but I won't do it. I never get high, smoke or drink on the show or in real life. That's not what I want black kids to see, close quote. What a long, strange trip it's been since that idea and Hollywood actors and their responsibilities would say things like that. Mosley got it long before Carl Malone, who had to instruct Charles Barkley, I don't think it's your decision to make. We don't choose to be role models. We are chosen. Our only choice is whether to be a good role model or a bad one. Something about the TC character, Magnum, and Donald Belisario did a lot to not only match the culture of the 1980s, but to help form it, and in a way, without even articulating it directly, protect it. Today, one looks nearly in vain for that, as I fear people like Cardi B and songs like WAP, I can't actually tell you on air what that acronym stands for, we'd be fined by the FCC, but I believe the Cardi Bs of the world That modeling is what we need to be worried about because it will be more lasting in our memory and saturate more of the culture than T.C. Calvin or Roger Mosley ever did or could. And a certain part of our culture is now a great deal more suffused with Cardi B's than Roger Mosley's, isn't it? Which brings me to what it was Mosley was getting at. We now live in a woke culture. There are certain neologisms that define periods in America, and the word cloud of our last 10 or so years would need several clouds with the word woke. But do we really know what it means, what its origins are? I'd really like the mainstream media and culture to understand where this word came from, because its very opposite original meaning is the defining meaning al-Quran. But it is very wrong, while the right and original meaning could very well be the roadmap to more racial harmony and justice here, especially as was quietly and strongly portrayed by a Roger Mosley. The word woke actually first made its appearance in the New York Times. It was in a 1962 op-ed by a writer named William Melvin Kelly. The op-ed was titled, No Mickey Mouse Can Be Expected to Follow Today's Negro Idiom Without a Hip Assist. If you're woke, you dig it, close quote. Kelly was writing about an ad in the New York City subways. The oddest thing is what Kelly wrote in 1962 about his culture, that of what he called the American Negro, his words. He said, despite some of those new words coming out of the African-American community, the black man, quote, wants to be completely accepted in American life. He dreams of living in a good neighborhood, driving a nice car, sending his children to a good school, making a decent living. 
He went on, quote, he realizes that anything which sets him apart will keep him apart, close quote. Of course, that, in fact, was the main goal of civil rights in the 1960s, integration, mainstreaming into all of American life and American life mainstreaming, mainstreaming its minority culture by accepting it pari parsu, pari pasu with the larger culture of shared interests and hopes. Somewhere, somehow, that became no longer the goal but the enemy. Integration transmogrified into re- and self-segregation. Judgments by race, then deemed odious, have now become de rigueur, at least to what we now have mainstreamed as woke. Consciousness raised, black power and consciousness became the new norm. Not human or equal consciousness, racial consciousness. Are you aware of how odious the idea of race power or power of race was to the integrationist ethic, the ethic of the inventor of the term woke? Let me read you a quote from a little bit later in that era. The year is 1966. Quote, We've heard a lot of talk over the last few months of black power, and we've started hearing talk of white power. But I don't talk about black power or white power. I would prefer to believe in a kind of striped power. We're black and white together. We work to achieve the legitimate power that all of God's children must have to function in life. The fact is that there is no separate black path to power and fulfillment that does not intersect white routes. And there is no white path to power and fulfillment short of chaos that does not share that power with black aspirations for freedom and human dignity. What we must come to see is that we are tied together and every Negro is a little white and every white person is a little Negro. All of our music, our language, our material prosperity, even our foods are an amalgam of black and white. So the Negro needs the white man to save him from his fears, while the white man needs the Negro to save him from his guilt. We are caught in an escapable network of mutuality. Guess who said that? Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. in a famous speech at Monmouth University. King, Reverend, Christian Church. The Smithsonian today tells us Christianity, however, is a badge and symbol of being white. Got it? Oh, and those values, the inventor of the term woke, from the African-American writer William Melvin Kelly? Again, as he wrote, the African-American dreamed of, quote, living in a good neighborhood, driving a nice car, sending his children to a good school, making a decent living. Close quote. Those last two to the Smithsonian are badges and symbols of whiteness. To those of us who still dream what we consider the possible dream of there being minimal differences among and between the races in America when it comes to economic and judicial and educational opportunities and outcomes, that dream sure is our dream. We just believe the current redefinition of that which constitutes woke or enlightened is little more than prisoners in the platonic caves seeing falsity and thinking it real. John McWhorter of Columbia University put it this way recently, quote, in the 1960s, a new and powerful fashion in black thought inherited from the general countercultural mood rejects championing assimilation to proposing that opposition to whiteness is the soul of blackness. Meanwhile, white leftists encourage as many poor black women as possible to go on welfare, hoping to bankrupt the government and inaugurate a fairer America. Soon, being on welfare in poor black communities is a new normal, hardly the usual, but so common that people grow up seeing not working for a living as ordinary. Then at the same time come the drugs. 
This feels more natural to them than it would have to their fathers because, one, the new mood sanctions dismissing traditional values as those of a chump, and two, it no longer feels alien to eschew legal employment, and three, the drugs help make it that most boys in such neighborhoods grow up without fathers anyway, close quote. I could call that common sense. I could call that obvious. I could call that the equivalent of two plus two equaling four. But as California and other woke states are proposing, yeah, that also is going to have to be considered racist, demanding that two plus two equals four. But I show you the times. And thus, we redefine everything today, don't we? Including names that fit reality nowhere but in Alice in Wonderland's looking glass. The Inflation Reduction Act being only the latest example, as it affects inflation not at all, except with the potential to increase it. And so our new world looks something like this, a list you may know from me, but one that is ever-expanding. The left has given us a new dictionary, or revived an old one from the practice George Orwell described. You know some of the Orwellian conceits. Speech is violence. Violence is mostly peaceful. Peacefully and patriotically marching is insurrection. Gender changing is gender affirming. Keeping hands off a body is having clinicians operate in your body. Wanting those hands off the body is putting hands on it. Colorblindness is racism. Discrimination is anti-racism. Voter suppression means more voters voting. Build back better means higher gas prices for your car and food shortages for your babies and tampon shortages for women, or I guess menstruating men. And now inflation reduction is inflation expansion. People ask, how can the left do so much of what they do to America and Americans? And how can so many accept or fall for it? This is one way. The point is to fuddle them. Old screw tape told his nephew, and they do fuddle us, don't they? With new words whose meaning simply nearly exclusively shaped by the dictionary of Humpty Dumpty is that the task is to fuddle. Never forget it. Here's to a better time with a better politics and a better culture and to the memory of Roger Mosley. Rest in peace. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. If you are interested in a remarkable investment opportunity with a great return for investors, check out my friends at Y Refi. What they're offering is a fixed no-load interest rate up to 10 quarter percent return for investors, all in a secure and collateralized portfolio. Y Refi is a due diligence approved firm. As I say, it's run by really great people who are doing very well by doing good for others. You can be part of that too. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest. The letter Y, R E F Y dot com, or you can give them a call at 855 316 3087. 3087. I was talking um, in my monologue a little bit at the end there about this effort to change the meaning of words, the conceit that things are supposed to mean the opposite of what they really are. You have to think about the poignancy and the efficacy of a plan that requires the party pushing it to change its meaning. You have to wonder about when they change the terminology of what a vaccine is or when they change the terminology about reducing inflation is or when they even change the terminology about what a recession is. I mean, this is far more daily, important daily to your daily lives, far more quotidian than 
some of the other stuff we've been talking about, like gender affirming is gender changing and that sort of thing, peacefully and patriotically marching is insurrection. That affects, you know, a few people here and there. By few, I'm understating it, but you take the point. Those kinds of things don't affect every American. But these massive decisions that this administration is engaging on using the conceit of faux language or a new dictionary, what Lincoln would have called the devil's, excuse me, the wolf's dictionary. Lincoln called it the wolf's dictionary. By doing that, they are affecting the lives of every American. We all participate in the economy. We all participate in inflation. We all participate in recession. We all participate in a diminished and weakened president of the United States. This stuff affects us all. And dressing it up Dressing it up with new language and, in fact, oppositional language not only is going to lead to further ruin, but it really should say something about the person who's trying to get away with it. If they were being straight with you, they wouldn't need to change the meaning of words, would they? If they were true believers in what they were proposing, or if they truly believed it was good, or if they truly believed you would buy it because it's a good idea, there would be no need for neologism and euphemism, would there? Yeah, it is very confusing, that great word befuddle I was mentioning before from the screw tape letters. New words whose meanings seem nearly exclusively shaped by the dictionary of Humpty Dumpty. I don't know what you mean by glory, Alice said. Humpty Dumpty smiled contemptuously. Of course you don't. Till I tell you. I mean, there's a nice knockdown argument for you, Humpty Dumpty says. But glory doesn't mean a nice knockdown argument, Alice objected. When I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said, it means just what I choose it to mean. Nothing more, nothing less. That's power coming from might, not right. That's the argument of Thrasymachus in Plato's Republic. Lincoln and this project was about right making might. The tyrant is always about might proving what's right. And you see what they're doing to you with that in Washington, D.C., in the hands of this Democratic Party which is increasingly making the own name of their party impossible to square with its origins as well. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Privileged, honored, and delighted to welcome back to the show, uh, I think, the best economist in the United States, Stephen Moore. He is the co-founder of the Committee to Unleash Prosperity at the Heritage Foundation and blessedly has an op-ed in um, today's Wall Street Journal, Fewer Curses, Costlier Energy. Steve, welcome back to the Airwaves of Phoenix. Yeah, that's great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we're talking about the Inflation Reduction Act. That's what you were writing about. I guess we're in this new world where we just named things for their opposite, right? Gender affirming means gender changing, yeah. inflation <laughs> reduction. Right. Yeah, right. Inflation Reduction Act means more inflation. Is that how you'd read it? Yeah, uh, well, just like um, transitory means yeah. permanent. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yes. So, uh, and her- yeah, look, this is, this is a horrific bill. It, it was a dark, dark day for the United States Senate. 
Uh, don't forget that your two senators in Arizona provided the, you know, could have stopped this bill because yep. either one of them had voted against it, yep. and they both uh, provided the the tie-breaking vote to pass this. I hope all the voters in Arizona remember that when Mark Keller pretends like he's some kind of moderate. Um, so, uh, lot to say about this, but I'll, I want to just start by saying this: we have we spent 1.9 trillion when uh, Biden came in on his blue state bailout bill. Remember that one? Yep. And we spent $1.1 trillion on that fraudulent infrastructure bill, which was really just the Green Energy Bill, the Green New Deal. Then we spent um, this year, with the help of some Republicans, a $200 billion bailout for the microchip industry. Mm-hmm. It also gave $25 billion more for the Energy Department. This bill is $700 billion. Now, I know you're probably adding these up, stuff as I speak. Yes, I'm writing it down. Yes. Numbers, <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you add all those numbers up, we're almost to $4 trillion dollars of spending in 18 months. Wow. Joe Biden is the most financially reckless president in the history of the United States. No president has run up the debt, run up our deficit, run up the inflation rate, and run up red ink faster uh, than Joe Biden has. And by the way, here in Washington, he's seen as a hero because, oh my gosh, he's done so much for our country. Yeah. If you consider a $4 trillion national debt add. You think that's a positive thing, then you probably love Joe Biden. Wow. Wow. All right. There's a lot to unpack in this specific piece of legislation. You do a great job of it in your Wall Street Journal piece. I want to commend it to people. But let's start um, or at least let's now move to the part about how we are now misallocating federal resources. You're yes. right. This is right. the greatest misallocation of federal resources in American yes. history. Let's start with that. So it's a very simple story. So what this bill does, because, you know, it has so many moving parts to yep. it, but the main component of the bill to just synthesize this is it takes about $300 billion from our pharmaceutical industry, the same industry that gave us Operation Warp Speed, the, you know, the uh, vaccine for the virus that saved uh, millions of lives around the world, uh, the, the same vaccine that's working for we're trying to win the race for can- against cancer and heart disease and multiple sclerosis and Alzheimer's and so on. And we're taking that $300 billion from our most productive industries, okay? And we're giving that $300 billion to arguably our least efficient industry, yeah. which is the wind and solar industry, which produce almost very tiny amount of energy. For the United. Only, you know what percentage of our energy, all of our energy comes from wind and solar power today? Well, I've got it in your op-ed. I didn't realize it was that low. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, six six or seven percent, yeah. something like that. Yeah. So that's tiny. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a fringe form of energy. And I want to make people understand this. And I know you're in Phoenix, where actually you can get a lot of energy from solar power in Phoenix because you've got a lot of sunshine. I'm from Chicago, Seth. You can't get a lot, you get a lot of uh, I'll you give know, you our sun if you give us your winter. <laughs> okay. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, so anyway, the idea that somehow we're going we're gonna to provide enough power for a $22 trillion industrial economy that, that produces manufactured goods, that produces you know, construction projects, that produces cars, steel, our, our um, energy-intensive um, high-tech industry, does anybody in the right mind think we're going to be able to power that kind of uh, economy with with green energy? You just it is impossible. In fact, if you wanted to figure out, hey, what's a good way to paralyze the American economy? Defunding all of our uh, you know main source of energy, which are nuclear, coal, oil, and gas, and shifting it over to something that's not scalable, like wind and solar power. Would have a uh, would would do the trick. This is a very sinister development, 
And I'm very worried about, and by the way, I'm sorry, I'm rambling on here. No, you're not. You're fine. You're fine. The two most important, who who do you think, I'm going to ask you a quiz question. Who, who, which two countries do you think are the big winners in this bill? I'm going to guess China and I'm going to guess Russia. Can I tease the audience with ding, the commercial? Ding, 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 ding. You, ding. Got ah, you got it. I got an A yeah. from Steve Moore. Let me take a quick commercial <laughs> break. Go. Let me take okay. a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. We'll pick up on that. But let the record reflect. I got an A plus, a 4.5 GPA from Steve Moore. Professor Moore will be right back with us. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Steve Moore is our guest. He has a great op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, co-founder of the Committee to Unleash Prosperity, senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Steve, right before the break, we were making the point that this nearly trillion-dollar bill is going to make life harder and um, and more difficult for Americans, but it's going to help in wealth in Russia and China. Is that what we said? Well, you got that exactly right. And think about this. I mean, those are the two you know, villain countries in the world right now. They yep. are our two primary adversaries. It would be like funding you know, the Soviet Union during the uh, Cold War. Yeah. And so how, now people are wondering, well, how does Russia benefit? I think that's pretty clear how Putin benefits. He wants to take over the oil and gas industry, right? And he's had a hard time over the last 10 years, about five years, because, you know, Donald Trump, and I was with him on the energy policy stuff, we built up American energy, yes, our, our oil production in, in Texas, in North Dakota, in Alaska, in, o- in Oklahoma, in Pennsylvania, in West Virginia. We produced so much energy that, that uh, the price fell, and, w- and we became an exporter, not an importer. That's right. And so that, that just defunded the, so, uh, you know, the Russian machine there. Now we're doing the opposite, and Russia's getting rich off of this. Now then, who do you think is the, which country do you think is the country that's producing the most coal? China is. So what's happening is, as we shut down our coal plants in the United States, in West Virginia and Wyoming and Pennsylvania and Ohio, guess what? China is building like three or four new plants for every time we shut one down. I guarantee your listeners, to your listeners, that President Xi doesn't care one whit about climate change. That is the last thing on his agenda. He wants to take over the world, and we are playing into his hands because, folks, what, the country that has energy dominance has a huge geopolitical advantage. We should not do this. We have to use all the energy resources we have. It's a huge national security problem, too. I don't know if you know Brandon. You better believe I was, it. I was talking to him earlier. He said, you know, I, I was reminding him. He was reminding the audience. You know, when we talk about, you know, the great engine uh, the great engine of, 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 of democracy, the great arsenal of democracy, that was because we had energy, literally using energy to make yep. tanks, to make automobiles, yep. to yep. make armaments. We can't do it. Well, I want to make another point here that, you know, you'll go back 100 years when Henry Ford first started making cars, when Standard Oil made, started, you know, producing mass producing oil and gas, which really made the whole, uh, you know, uh, industrial uh, strength of America possible. They weren't getting subsidies from the United no. States government. No, no, <laughs> no, no. You know, Henry Ford didn't get subsidies, or John D. Rockefeller didn't get subsidies. Why do we have to provide? This is the fourth straight bill that gives tens and tens, in this case, hundreds of billions of dollars yeah. to the green. If this is so wonderful, if this is the energy of the future, why do they need a half a trillion dollars? Great point. 
Great point. Do me one other thing while I have you, Steve, just for the back of the hand in the audience's uh, walk away from our interview. Um, we're talking about he, while Joe Biden is guaranteeing that there will not be a middle class tax hike in here. We're looking at this and saying that can't possibly be true. Well, I mean, they had an amendment yesterday in that uh, Senate vote. One of the I forget the senator, the Republican senator who, you know, authored that amendment and basically said nobody who makes less, less than $400,000 should be audited, right? Because we're not going to raise taxes on anybody who makes less than $400,000, according to Biden. How many times has he said that? Yeah. And that bill, that, that amendment went down on a straight parity line vote. Again, every Democrat in the Senate voted against that. And they're coming. Look, folks, they're not going to. Do you think they're going to get more money out of Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or Zuckerberg or these, you know, billionaires or Elon Musk? No way. They have armies and armies of tax accountants and lawyers. The people they're coming after are people who make between, say, seventy five and three hundred thousand dollars in that range. And the small businessmen and women who can't fight back against the IRS. And that's what's so sinister about 80,000 new IRS agents, you could fill up Yankee Stadium. What's your stadium there in uh, in, in Arizona? The, the, where, do they, where do the Cardinals play? What's uh, the stadium? Well, I, I just know it as the Cardinals Stadium. It seems to change <laughs> okay. every couple okay. of years. So well, I just how many safely... people does that seat? I bet that seat's probably 75, 80,000 yeah. people. Yeah. So th- I want people to envision yeah. that whole football stadium filled with new IRS agents. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I do have a role for them. I mean, if there's that many people who are willing to sign up, I think it's now State Farm, by the way. But uh, but I, I, I you know, if we have if we have that many people that want to work for the government, um, let's put them on our border. Let's put them on our border and see. Uh, you how... know that I wrote a column on that. And I said, look, yeah. we yeah. have we need about have we need about five to ten thousand more right. people at the border to secure a border. Yep. And did you see the article of the news story about three weeks ago? That, our, that the army is twenty five to forty thousand dollars short yep. of recruits yep. for our armed services. Yep. Wouldn't it be smarter to hire ten thousand more people at the border and thirty thousand more people for our armed forces who keep us safe rather than eighty five thousand IRS agents? It shows how absolutely warped the Democrat uh, Senate priorities are it really is a divorce from where the american people are it really is out of touch isn't it i mean you know you can you can you can get mad at people or 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 you can applaud them for for supporting candidates that really are a little bit different because they're speaking to what the base cares about but it turns out the base is the base is 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 the american people that are just finding their life getting awfully damn hard all of a sudden well, the one piece of good news, because we are going to do everything we can to defeat this bill, we're trying. Obviously, it's tough when other Democrats are, you know, marching lockstep with Biden on this. But I'll tell you this: that you know, the American people only, only I think, fifteen percent of Americans think this bill will reduce inflation. Yeah. Only fifteen percent, yeah. and, and they're right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. they're wrong. Those fifteen percent are wrong. Yeah. The other eighty-five percent. Yeah, no, no, no. Right. The wisdom of the American people on this one is is not to be gainsaid. And we're, what did Orwell say? We've reached a point where the task of the intelligent is now to restate common sense, restate the obvious. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, my, my great late friend, Herman Cain, who I loved, adored that man. He, his late last book, you know what the title of his last book was? Uh, was it They Think You're Stupid, maybe? 
They think you're stupid. Yeah. I, I have a thing for Herman Cain, too. Yeah, God love you. God love him. Yeah. So, you know, he was right about that, wasn't yeah. they really do These politicians really do think we're stupid, yeah. and guess what? We're not. Yeah. <laughs> well, the only real important victory is that I got A-pluses from Professor Moore today on there every question. He, I, <laughs> I am your best student. I'm going to come back with a harder test I'm gonna, next time. I, I sit in the front row and I annoy you, but I am your best student. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Steve Moore. God bless you, sir. Thank you. Okay, you too, my friend. Talk Take to care. you soon. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Thanks for spending some of your Monday with us. Really appreciate it. I was... Um, over the weekend, uh, starting a book that uh, I've been meaning to read for years and just never got around to, and it's Milton Friedman's book from 1980 called Free to Choose, and it's an expansion on what he did in the 70s with PBS, which was a, a televised series of, of talks he gave, um, which you can still get uh, using your favorite social media player if you want. It's well worth it. Uh, and And... When you read a book like Free to Choose, he goes through every economic issue chapter by chapter. So there's a chapter on taxes. There's a chapter on inflation. You get the idea. You understand that from his big landmark book in the 60s, Capitalism and Freedom, uh, you see you see the thread of his thought unchanged when he talks about the importance of combining political freedom and economic freedom. And that how you cannot divorce the two. And yet, and yet, how dangerous the power can be. He writes, the combination of economic and political power in the same hands can be a recipe for tyranny. The combination of economic and political freedom produced a golden age in both Great Britain and the United States in the 19th century. The United States prospered even more than Britain, started with a clean slate, fewer vestiges of class and status, fewer government restraints a more fertile field for energy drive and innovation, and an empty continent to conquer. But then what happens next with our political freedom? We surrendered it. We surrendered it, and we no longer made our government an umpire, as Thomas Jefferson said it should be. We made it an active participant and curtailed freedom, and hence came the danger and the depredations. We're seeing it today. We're seeing it today. It's worth rereading these men who spoke the verities, thought the verities, the durables. Turns out they're durables for a reason. Or at least I call them durables for a reason. They last. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. I'm Seth Liebson, and class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.